Hi, welcome to The Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Helen Rosner, one of your two hosts, and right over there, waving at me across the room, is my co-host, Greg Morbido. On each episode of The Eater Upsell, we go into the minds of the smartest, most successful, most interesting people in the world of food, restaurants, and culture. And on today's episode, Greg and I talk with David Chang, the force of nature behind the Momofuku restaurant empire, and arguably one of the people most singularly responsible for, and imagine I'm saying each of these words with a capital letter at the front of it, the way we eat now. Stick around as we talk with Dave about everything from imposter syndrome to coming to terms with the importance of Yelp to his reluctant embrace of his Korean heritage to which major restaurant critic, and this is a pretty major restaurant critic, can honestly just go fuck himself. Before we get to that, though, a quick reminder, if you're not already subscribed to The Eater Upsell, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. It's what keeps the lights on over here. The other thing that keeps the lights on and also the water running are your ratings. So if you haven't given us a five star rating, please take a second to do that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or compliments even, you can reach me and Greg at upsell at eater.com. Okay, let's talk with Dave. You're very famous. Congratulations. I, I guess. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> no, it's an it's a, it's a honor to be here. I've been uh, hearing your podcast for a while now. So. Oh, really? Thanks for having me. Real honor. Hey, Dave, I want to thank you for introducing a hashtag on Instagram that we talk about sometimes in the office. At least I was new to it, which is ugly mm-hmm. delicious. There's so much pretty food on the internet right now that it's like almost exhausting. But the stuff you really want to eat is ugly delicious stuff. Yeah. Do you want the long or short answer? Long, long, always I, long. I want the long. Um, yeah. We'll edit out the boring parts. When I was younger cooking, all I wanted to do was get away from, you know, home cooked meals, Korean stuff, uh, anything that I basically grew up eating because I just thought it wasn't cool because I basically grew up uh, being, you know, humiliated for what I ate. Um, and cooking French was just the cool. It was the pinnacle of gastronomy. And then quickly, the alternative to that was Japanese food. And for years, I just tried to make my kind of food or the food that interested me was that. And <clears throat> I think with the advent of social media, I feel like restaurants and many chefs are doing the same thing. You guys probably see this whenever you go out to eat. It's this homogenized thing. It's very hard. The act of creation gets imitated almost in, you know, sometimes one day. It's like crazy. Like Renee's doing stuff in Mexico, and later that week I can see those dishes somewhere else in America. And I think the whole idea of Ugly Delicious was how do I make food uh, that I'm comfortable making again or I've embraced and shying away, not shying away from, you know, Basically, I've got, as I've gotten older, I've embraced all the things that I truly love eating, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. And uh, the only reason to be embarrassed about it was because it just, wherever I wanted to eat it or however I grew up eating it, it just wasn't cool. No, I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. Do you mean specifically Korean food? Mm, anything that's ugly, basically. Like curries. Um, curries is probably the, the ugliest food you could possibly make, I think. Uh, two people, a lot of Korean food, some Chinese food, but they happen to be all the food that I don't think is delicious. It's ugly if you look at it from a Eurocentric American point of view. It's beautiful and quite natural for basically everyone else. So what would you think of as an iconic example of beautiful food? So we can sort of triangulate what we're talking about when we talk about ugly food. Mm, something, um, first thing comes to mind is something Alain Ducasse would make. Like beautifully plated, beautifully plated tweezer uh, food kind of thing. Even before it was tweezer food, like on it, you could probably even tie that kind of food to the decor, to the stemware, to the plateware, um, and just the, the 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 very much the aesthetics of it. To me, reek of one kind of one kind of deliciousness, and that to me was something I've always struggled with. And now I. As I turn 40, I'm totally comfortable and I'm trying to push myself to embrace things that I find to be not that. And not that I don't enjoy eating that or going or supporting it or love those techniques. I don't know if it's my calling to embrace that as I try to make this food myself. Have you ever really felt like it's your calling? I mean, I think, you know, the 
the the TLDR story of Momofuku is so centered on this notion of rejecting all of that aesthetic trapping of fine dining and rejecting the formality and just saying, like, fuck it, this tastes good. Yes, but also I think part of that was uh, the rejection happened because I'm a classicist at heart, right? Um, you know, and and I think Daniel Hume said it best, like, it's hard to hard to break the rules until you know what the rules are. And for me, it's been this giant struggle of trying to figure out what that is and genuinely finding my voice. And I think I've always listened to that and following my gut, but now it's like, I mean, it sort of coincides with the point in my life where I'm actually cool and totally comfortable being Korean and being Korean American. And my entire life, uh, pretty much most of my younger formative years, I was like growing up, not being accepted by Korean people, not being accepted by white people, growing up in Northern Virginia, going to pretty waspy colleges, blah, blah, blah. Um, never really feeling comfortable in that. So now it's just something that I'm comfortable with. And I think that is probably the main reason. I'm just comfortable in my own skin now. And I think that over the past sort of 15 years, I, that at least in the food that we've made has been an exploration of how far I could like push that out for my own sort of edification. What changed for you that made you comfortable? I think growing up, simply as that, like uh, living and making more mistakes. Um, and I just think getting older, I mean, it's it's as simple as that. Just the pure passage of time. Yeah, pure passage of time. Doesn't make me less angry. Um, all of that stuff is there, but there's certain things that I'm, I'm just more comfortable in. And I feel like it's difficult for me because I'm trying not to run the restaurants like a totalitarian state. Whereas I think before I would say, we're making this dish and we're all good. You're going to fucking like it. Now... I'm trying very hard to put some dishes on that are I are of the ugly delicious genre and it's interesting to see the younger cooks in our restaurants or even your younger chefs have a hard time I think embracing it because they're just like this looks like shit and I'm trying not to like tell them that they're wrong because if I was 25 years old having to make that kind of food I'd be like there's what seems to be no technique it's sloppy plating all of these things and yeah, that's true, but I can't force that upon them. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I think that like take the pork bun, which is, I don't know, I've had that dish dozens of times. It's probably um, one of the most Instagrammable dishes like in the history of Instagram. I always think it looks like a mouth with like a tongue sticking out, you know, but it's always looked exactly the same no matter how many times I've gotten it. So it's like... Uh, a movement away from that, it well, seems. No, I think know? I can, I mean, as I've learned, and you've, if you ask my psychiatrist, I'd probably be, I can hold multiple viewpoints simultaneously. That's very one, advanced. Yeah, one one is, <laughs> I certainly want it sloppy, but I also am a stickler for certain things. And it has to be beautiful. It just can't be shit on a plate. It has to be beautifully done. And I think the beautiful part happens with your intent in terms of how you're going to make the food, how you want the customer to receive it and the actual process of cooking it. And without sounding cheesy, it's genuinely how much you care about it. And that's where I'm actually trying to reconcile with myself is, is food simply about caring more about it than the actual creation of it. And I think as you get older, you already see these cycles of chefs where you do something adventurous, adventurous, ambitious, where you don't know what the fuck you're doing, then you go up and then you start simplifying and then comes full circle where you're just like, I just want to make fucking Italian food. You see that all the time. And I think for me, that's not actually the cycle. I think for anyone, I think maybe <clears throat> for me, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, I don't even, it's so hard to describe this. I've never even spoken about this. Um, it's, uh, how should I say? The food now is about, am I at a point in my life where winning accolades and winning awards and making food that is constantly going to be pushing the ground, pushing the boundaries, what is that worth? And am I at a point in my life? Not that it's not. I think it's really important to, at least for me, to have gone through that. And it wasn't about winning awards. It was proving your worth, proving your worth to the public, to myself. And now it's not that I'm not trying to do that. I'm wondering, is it worth it for the cost of my life and the people around me uh, for what is essentially this narcissistic endeavor? 
Or is it worth it to take it more towards the home cooking slant angle and treat all your customers like my grandmother f- like fed me? And I'm, I don't, I've reached a point where I'm not trying to invalidate either of them. I'm just trying to maybe get a little bit more to the, the home cooking vibe. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. And I was going to say, I can see that, that trend in like a lot of the restaurants you've opened recently of like, it's, they're about like eating and accessibility. A lot of them, I think like Fuku and Ando and, you know, Nishi even, um, not like you've opened a bunch of those restaurants and, and, you know, not, not necessarily more Momofuku Co's or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if that's a conscious decision, but. No, I mean, for a long time, there was no strategic growth, right? Our first restaurant outside New York was in Australia. No one fucking does that. Um, but I, it's been a long time. People, I think I forget that Momofuku is like old now where I'm like turning 40. I'm probably the second oldest person in the company, which is a fucking crazy thing. Um, I think though, for me, I love Co. I, I think Sean and Sue are doing something amazing and they're on their own sort of vision quest journey. And I'm there to support it however I can. And it's hard to see the, the trials and tribulations and pitfalls of reaching and constantly striving to sort of earn the stars, earn your keep, have the street cred. And then, you know, the legacy of what is Momofuku right now is hard to keep up. You know, Sambar is a three-star New York Times restaurant. Do I... Th- that's a fucking hard legacy to leave up to. I, I, didn't, I didn't want that. And I think that's a burden for the cooks and for everyone. It's, it's living up to this legacy when food is better than ever before now. And there's great restaurants. And I think I still want to push the envelope. I still want to do that. I think that's really important to do. But I think for me, what I'm also looking at is what are the how, – how important is it to make super delicious food that is not only populist but keeps the critics happy without demoralizing or making the people around you's lives like less amazing because i think there's a certain cost of like pushing those boundaries like which i I've, I've seen it's it's a lot of i, I wouldn't say unhappiness but it's like I, it's hard to justify making food just a little bit more delicious um, at the cost of how many people sacrifice, you know, things. Yeah, it sounds like in the Jerry Maguire sense, you want the Quan or something. Yeah, I, you know? I don't know. I, I, I say I don't know all the time because I genuinely don't know. I'm figuring it out just like anyone else. And I'm wondering, I would rather have a restaurant that is not reviewable but makes people happy. I'm able to take care of my cooks, the servers, and our purveyors, but just make people happy. At the end of the day... That's our only job, and I hate to say that I'm in the hospitality business. I think that over the years it's improved, and there's more than one way to get to that end goal of making someone extraordinarily happy. Uh, for a long time, there was only one way, the French high-end fine dining, or even in terms of hospitality, you know, Danny Myers just absolutely killed it in the Union Square way. But I think if you look at it at a global perspective, there are many ways to get to that end goal, and I'm just trying to find another way. What does it mean for a restaurant to be unreviewable? I think that's one reason why people love Houston so much or Hillstone's group as a, as a chef. Uh, people love that restaurant. They bake everything in-house. Everything is made in-house. They take care of their cooks. Uh, they pay their cooks a ton of money. And they have a system. And it's just good enough where people are happy. And the more I look at it, and I think I've always wanted to take a populist stance to food, ever since trying to do Korean burritos at Sambar, which is the craziest thing we probably have ever done. Um, that's ultimately, to me, all that matters. Um, and I think something's gotten lost in these new cycles of food, of awards this, um, how do I remain relevant? And to me, like my brother was a huge Grateful Dead fan, and I always marveled at the sort of legion of fans that would follow this band that did no media know anything uh, in in tradition to what was pop culture, yet my brother would travel around the world pretty much to follow them. Um, And I think it's simply because they were able to make a connection to the guest. 
And I think ultimately there's many ways to that. And I think something gets lost trying to prove your worth to everyone around you in order to make that food, you know, super delicious. And maybe there's a, a happy middle, middle of making f- great food accessible without the bullshit of basically the food media that we live in right now. I guess it's our fault. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'll take uh, it. Yeah, we should we should take we should take on some of that responsibility. Seriously, Helen. I it's mean, it's cold. No, I'm I'm willing to self-flagellate. I'm here for the self-hatred. But well, no, I think you know the relationship between food media and restaurants. I mean, it's always existed, right? Like as long as there has been transactions, there have been people commenting on whether the transaction is worth it. But certainly, you know, the the trope that we return back to again and again in the conversations that we have on this podcast is sort of what happened with the simultaneous rise of the internet and rise of food culture as a thing, which Momofuku was such an essential component of. I mean, when Noodle Bar opened in 2004, it was... We were a, right place, right time. Yeah, I mean, but it was, it was, a, it was you know, a, a nuclear bomb went off, basically, in, in the sense of... The way both media and diners and chefs and like literally every single person involved in the equation had to recalibrate what their axis was for a good restaurant from like cheap to expensive to like, whoa, no, like maybe the axis is just one of quality or pleasure, which is something that in retrospect seems very obvious, right? Like, Mm -hmm. of course, we should have been valuing the food that tastes the best, but it was a huge reset of the way everything operated I don't know. And I think, you know, media was a big part of helping distribute that narrative. But do you still think it's a, a fundamentally adversarial relationship? No, absolutely not. I, I, I get along with everyone pretty much um, contrary to what people might believe. I, I do, I, especially in the in the media. I, I get it. It's a two-way street. What I'm basically thinking is I think as a whole, it would seem to me the food media is continuing to do what it used to do 10 years ago. And things are dramatically different, and we can no longer um, use what worked for us in the past because it's just diff- – it's a whole different ballgame. People see the news cycles, and it moves so fucking fast that it's it's almost comical how things are moving right now. It's, it's story after story after story, and I think the problem I have with – it's not the food media. I'm not. It's not attacking anyone. It's literally the sort of the society we live in at large right now. Is it prevents people and cooks and chefs and restaurateurs from my end because I can only speak from that to incur, to to actually want to try new things and make mistakes. And I just think everyone needs to chill out, myself included. I, I've done so many stupid things over the years, but um, it just seems like it's. Escalating, everything has to. Everyone has to keep up with this whole thing. I don't know how I'm explaining this, but no, I mean it, it feels very real to me, and probably to you too, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Um, on that note, I've heard a lot of chefs talk shit about Yelpers, but I, I saw on like the Momofuku Twitter feed recently, you were at like a Yelp, elite Yelper dinner, talking to uh, you know the the crowd there. I'm just kind of curious where you think that those uh, Yelp and elite Yelpers, where they fit into the equation. Yeah, I know. Well, one of your colleagues, I know, talk shit about it to me and uh, definitely give me oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'll tell you this. I, uh, I believe that Yelp is probably going to be the one of, if not the only source of like uh, food sort of criticism. And it's like a rotten tomato score for restaurants. And if you just look how people consume movie reviews now, no one reads that shit anymore unless you're like an avid New Yorker fan. I don't even read A.O. Scott anymore. He's one of my favorite journalists out there um, because like the information's right there. And then for someone that's had an adversarial relationship with Yelp and sort of some of those food bloggers because I don't think they understand the pain that it can cause chefs. Um, no one would like to be reviewed on a daily basis at their jobs. And all I'm saying is sometimes everyone should increase their empathy just a little bit more before destroying someone. Everyone has their bad days. We're not perfect individuals. And we shouldn't become a whipping post for people um, for whatever reasons. And it's not everyone. I think that was my, my main complaint because I think you need to have some sort of credibility to speak about food, decor, 
ambiance, whatever. But there are great food bloggers out there. Many of them are elite Yelpers. And wherever I go, if I travel and I find out a place, the thing that pops up first on your Google search is almost always Yelp. And I'd be lying if I said those scores and the aggregate of stars don't influence my opinion. And um, as we open up more places, the more and more I saw and the more and more I would see other people, they used Yelp as their sort of North Star for culinary guidance. Um, so I was like, okay, this is something I should look into. I also wind up doing this thing with uh, Nate Silver about uh, you know the best burrito, and he had this crazy algorithm about using Yelp uh, scores, and he basically told me how even if you think that they're all wrong, the fact that you have individuals giving you their input and you can aggregate that, that is a powerful tool. And we were able just by him trying to figure that out. Was it a perfect, absolute perfect way of figuring out the best burritos in America? No, it wasn't. Did it allow us to cut through a lot of the bullshit? Yes, it was. So my whole thing was, instead of bitching about it, which I'm fantastic at, why don't I engage them and try to see if something can be a little bit different? And that's what we've tried to do. And to be honest with them, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. I think we've done three of these dinners and I think they've gone really well. And yeah, it looks funny, I'm sure, to people of the like certain sort, but we're doing things a little bit differently. Our job isn't to, you know, be exclusive and, and, and private. And I think Yelp, if anything, is literally something that everyone uses. So why would we be opposed to that? I like that way of thinking of Yelp as something where it is, it is in fact incredibly powerful in the aggregate to look at what hundreds or in some cases thousands of people have felt about a single restaurant. It, the individual reviews can often be huge outliers, but I guess this is, you know, the fundamental principle of democracy is like one idiot balances out another. And again, I think I made a mistake of just ignoring it. Why, why would, you know, trying very hard not to do things the way we used to do. So I think pushing myself and Momofuku out of its comfort zones is widely important to who we are. Do you think that uh, starred reviews from like newspapers and those kind of publications have less impact on business than they did 10 years ago? Um, yeah. Um, it's, 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 um, it's insane to think about how less potent certain reviews are. Um, I remember when I worked for Marco Canora and Tom at Kraft, they sent me up to Midtown outside New York Times building to pick up <laughs> pick up the damn New York Times on Tuesday, waiting outside for that to come out to bring down. Because that really made or broke a restaurant. I mean, it was that was something else. And you, they were even doing something on New York One where they would release the news about the restaurants. Um, what was the star rating the day you picked it up? We got three stars. So it was a good day. It was, it was a great day. And it was uh, amazing to see my heroes, you know, be in such a celebratory mood. Um, but I don't think anyone anticipated sort of the democratization of um, food reviewing. And, you know, I'm a little bit older. I've seen it and I've seen the whole cycle. And certain things are more important to me still. Like, I'd be lying if the Michelin Guide wasn't important to me. I wish I didn't care about it as much. I wish I didn't care about certain things. In terms of reviews, though, it's still impactful. I think that Pete Wells' review last year of Nishi, the Ryan Sutton review of Nishi, sometimes I think were uh, like a, a Momofuku correction. It aggregated all the things because, you know, knock on wood, we've been very fortunate to have majority of just really great reviews. Um, and I was on another planet that year even before in terms of my mind and state of mind and what I was doing. And <clears throat> I think um, at the end of the day, the fault of that restaurant, and it, it wasn't even fault. Um, I still believe in what we did very wholeheartedly. I think the food, we never made Italian food. Every dish we made was Korean. Every fucking dish we made was Korean. It just looked Italian. And that was sort of the whole premise of it. Underlying score of that was could we I, we couldn't serve <laughs> it's hard to describe this we couldn't do Korean food and charge what we felt were uh, prices in that room with the no tipping policy so it was like 
everyone pays out their ass for fucking Italian food. Let's just see if we can do that. And that was sort of the goal, to sort of justify the price with the service included. My mistake at that time was figuring out, could you do it with like the traditional Momo ambiance, which I, I like a lot. And this is something I've been grappling, grappling with for a whole year. And by the traditional Momo ambiance, you mean like plywood, yeah. no fabrics, loud music, open kitchen. Yeah, because for me, I'm a cook. I want the food. I want people to leave wanting the food. And even places that are beautiful and nice. I think we have restaurants at Toronto. It's so nice. Sydney and Co., they're very, very luxurious. But they're also done in a way that is not your traditional um, French or American fine dining. Again, not that I don't appreciate that. I think for me, it's just something I can't do. So to be criticized for that, I think that was hard because it was an attack on, I think, who I am as a person. Um, and that's why I took it so personally. And, and I've, I believed in the food. And I'm not trying to sound like I have sour grapes. It's been, you know, this process of understanding how that all went down. Um, and I was in a bad place because of it. So I think I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to retool. And I think Nishi's actually doing great. Um, you know, Josh, we have Jamie Liu. The food's great, and it's really evolved. And I think I've had to question um, what kind of food do you do in order to justify reviews? Or, or do I, if I opened that restaurant up and made it look sort of like a, you know, three-star modern American restaurant, would we have gotten good reviews, right? And for me, the question is simply like, how, how, do, you do, how do you do the food then? For me, so I've always just wanted the food to be the, the, the sole vehicle for people to have a great time. That's more and more difficult these days because as we move to, towards more experiential dining. Um, so I could talk fucking a week about this. Um, and I don't know if I've articulated any of it, but I, I mean, like, I haven't, as you can see, I'm at war with myself about how this all fucking works out. Um, but reviews are really hard. Um, and I don't have the anger in me now to attack it like I used to. And I worry about the mental stability of my guys trying to shoulder that load to, like, maintain the, that sort of review integrity. Um, so <clears throat> I see a lot of my guys very much like those 1980s drug commercials when the kid's doing smoking pot and the dad yells at him, where did you learn this? <laughs> and he's like, I learned it from watching you, dad. Yes. And I hate seeing my guys make the same stupid bonehead decisions that I've made. Um, and I know where they learn it from. And it's really hard for me um, as a very older f brother figure to a lot of these guys and girls for them to make the same mistakes. And it makes me wonder, it's like, what is this worth? So we can get a fucking a temporary stamp of approval. People don't need awards. They don't need reviews. And I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, the review and the review process is something I'm trying to mitigate. What I'm trying to understand is how to be more in the present, how to cook for the people that are in the room, and make sure our cooks and servers aren't mentally checked out because they're trying to, like, live up to a standard that, you know, is no longer for them. The thing I'm curious about, and it's not just the case, I think, with you and the cooks who work for you. I mean, we have— talked to dozens and dozens of chefs on the show, and I think that at the core of a lot of people's experience, once they reach a certain place of success and ex uh, an empire size and things like that, is this question of wanting to find balance between what you are driven by as the person at the center and at the top, but also wanting to allow the people who are coming up within your empire to be allowed to follow these motivations, even if you have come around to the other side of them. Yeah, I think for a long time, I managed in a horrific fashion, um, and not to justify any of that. I just didn't know any better. I, I was just on a one-way ticket, and that's just how I lived my life, and, and cooked, and would built my teams. And now, as we're growing, and we have so many people that have been with us 10 plus, almost 14 years, They've grown. They have family. So I, I genuinely believe 
that the only reason to grow is to provide for other people. And if anyone got in this business to make a ton of money, they're a fucking idiot. Um, at the end of the day, I, that is my like primary motive. And the question I'm trying to wrap, wrap my head around is how do you do that with a way that is still uh, not crappy, still doing great food, but making sure that we don't run it like a totalitarian state. Um, and I think ultimately when you do that, it's easy to transition when you have new talent and you're growing, but you have to remind yourself that you have to immediately, like quickly shift from that kind of managerial style to, um, something that's a lot more transparent and where, you know, I just, you can create checklists and systems and say, you know, you're going to measure this out to the gram. You're going to use salt this and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's almost cooking by numbers. Or, and I think you sometimes have to do that in a kitchen uh, as we grow. And I think what I'm trying to do is get to a place where we're now just defining what the sandbox is. You can do whatever the fuck you want in that sandbox. Um, if you want to go out, outside the boundaries of that sandbox, let's have a discussion about moving those boundaries a little bit out. <clears throat> and I think for me, I'm just, again, trying to grapple, grapple with ideas. Have I like fooled myself thinking that I've been making the sandbox? I've been managing and teaching my guys the sandbox method when I've really just been running like Mussolini, you know? Have there been people who or have— Or Kim Jong-un. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole global history of dictators that we could choose from. I mean, yeah, all, all, all good. All good. I got to keep it Asian. <laughs> um, have, have you sort of been on this journey on your own, or have there been people who have kind of helped step in and— said like, hey, listen, let's reconsider the way we're approaching this? Um, I've been really, really fortunate to have so many people, blessed to have so many people uh, intervene in my life um, from, um, you know, <clears throat> many strong women actually mostly have pulled me aside and say, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and I'll I'm so thankful for them, um, and they constantly check up on me. And I don't know what is about me that uh, makes me get this advice. Um, <laughs> uh, and then on the other side, I have um, just—I'm really lucky to just get advice. But like, um, you know, my mom's important in my life, but it's not like we converse every day. Um, especially because my Korean sucks and her English sucks. So to be able to have these like mm -hmm. mom-like figures where I can call them and be like, this is what's going on. And they talk to me in a way that not only do I listen, but it's like, it really resonates. Um, that's amazing. And that is something that I, I've just, I've cherished forever. And then I have people that are successful in all walks of life that say, hey, Dave, what are you doing? You should do it this way. And sometimes I feel like I'm in like this, like, you know, this, Truman-like show, or, or I feel like I have Michael Landon's, you know, <laughs> angels all around me, constantly, like, being like, hey, you should do it this way. Oh, my God. Touched by an angel of the team. <laughs> then story. the real, and then the, 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 for the real, though, it's when usually one of my guys comes up to me and say, Dave, you're being an asshole. Um, and that's, that's the, the biggest wake-up call, because I'm always upset that I didn't realize that beforehand. Um, so I get advice from everyone. I seek it out all the time. And I'm actively trying to, like, get better at everything we do. Um, and it's just, it's fucking hard. This whole goddamn business is so goddamn hard. Well, Dave, looking to the future, though I really want to actually keep going down this philosophy rabbit hole forever, I would love to talk about this for the rest of my life. But looking to the future, bringing us back into, like, the world of the more concrete the Momofuku Restaurant Group, which has been massively growing yes. basically since its inception, you recently brought in some new management. Yep. And the fascinating thing about this change is that these are – is it just the one guy or is it a team are coming in from the world of like big box club strongs, which in many ways to me feel like the opposite of the Momofuku ethos. Yes. I'm sure it could look like that. Um Alex was at uh, the One Group, and I don't think I've ever been to an establishment of the One Group. They was, run Tao, right? Or I don't no, think it's so. not Tao. They run a lot of people. Um, it was more for his uh, credibility in the industry. For I mean, 
he's just widely respected person, particularly what he was able to contribute from the B&B Hospitality Group. And he's someone that has maturity, has seen a lot, and uh, is just a good guy and willing to sort of be an operator and manager of the business in a way that we were not able to do. And I think it was a great disservice to the staff and the employees by not being able to make the right kinds of decisions. And it's something that we've been looking for for a long time, over a couple of years. And knowing that this role is a very important role, we were really excited that Alex uh, came on board because um, we are growing. And I want to ensure that growth is done in a, a sensible fashion because it was up to me. I'd make... <laughs> I make a lot of stupid decisions because everything is so delicious in my head as an idea. I constantly have to fight that urge um, or I'm just going to do too much. And sometimes I do too much to just keep my mind, you know, from going bad places. Like I just I have an indulgence to be able to just do too much in my head, particularly with work. It was really important to me to be partner with someone like Alex that's going to keep me in check and to have the best interest of the company at hand. Because as I said, like we're trying to build a great company and that's going to take care of everything uh, on the, from the terms of employees. And, and, you know, the whole idea of growing is something that I may not be the right person for. So I'm just trying to be as honest as possible about it. So he has the track record and he has, I think the industry credibility where people genuinely appreciate and respect what he's done in the past. So I, I think that might look strange on the surface, but for me, it makes all the sense in the world. Where do you hope Momofuku is in a decade? I don't know. Um, do you even want to be involved in the decision-making process? <laughs> I, I do. I just, the whole idea is just hard for me because um, this part of Momofuku is new to me. And... Um, it's way easier for me just to be in one restaurant. And it's been a while since I've even done that. Um, but we have, we've, we've got a lot of people and we have to grow. And it's funny. I, I ask, I asked John George, I asked Danielle, I asked Mario, I asked all these guys and everyone has a different answer. Um, I don't have that answer yet. Uh, I'm as I, as you can probably tell, I'm still trying to figure out just about everything. I, I, I have to tell myself, um, and it's not just tell myself, I think that the main reason why we're growing is to provide opportunity and to do something great and to build a great company and do it in a way that can be done. Uh, how do you build a great company just like you build a great restaurant? People admire it and we're taking care of everyone. Um, that's really important to me. Um, and how do you do it in a way that's still thoughtful? Um, you know, you can't just do 50%, you know, corporate. You can't just do 50% trying to do creative stuff. You know, it's you got to be fully committed to a corporate body, right, for governance and systems and operations. And I think you have to be fully committed to the artistic anarchy um, to sort that's the balance. It's, it's not some ratio. It's both simultaneous. And that's what I, I think what we need. And I think if Momofuku's fucked up, sometimes it's been either too much of one. Um, so we'll see. I think that we've got concepts. We've made a lot of stuff. And it's just trying to figure out what's going to work. Um, and, I, you know, I could go a lot deeper on that. But we've I don't think that there are a lot of restaurant groups that were financed and grown like the way Momofuku has been grown because we did everything out of our own budget. Um, and that gets a little bit harder to do, right? Um, I can't personally take on more of that financial burden. Um, and I have, I'm like guaranteed on just about every goddamn loan possible. Um, and at a certain point now you can't. And I think that for me, um, Maybe the best thing for Momofuku is to, like, find some balance. And I think maybe the only way to get balance for everyone is through scale. I, I don't know. Um, these are things that are <laughs> I think about all day long because I'm trying like hell to find the best answer. 
Do you still want to like bring Fuku to a bunch of other cities? Yeah. I'm a big yeah, Fuku I, fan. I mean, Fuku's opening up near there's offices in 110 Wall. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we're excited about that. And, and it's just like, it's so much, e- it's not easier, but it's different. It's a different kind of creativity. And in some ways, I just wish I sometimes only did Fuku because there's not so many moving pieces. Um, and maybe maybe that's what I will do in Focus. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to, like, sort that out myself. Um, but, yeah, Fuku, I think we're, um, we got a couple more things lined up, and, and that's, that's going. The biggest issue is just, like, building the right kind of team. This is really our first restaurant we've actually ever done. Um, 163 First Avenue has sort of been this incubator, and Fuku was repurposed for it. And then eventually Fuku will probably move out and we'll do a new concept in 163. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Ma uh, we have a Fuku Plus there. And again, like that was just sort of a, you know, existing space. So this is the first time we've ever had the chance to do it. And I think if you see what Fuku has done, it's very Momo Fuku thing. Like we fuck up. We have to make mistakes. I wish... I was like, I always marvel at what Will and Daniel do because they're like, this is our plan. This is our agenda. And we're going to, we, we have it so detailed out. And I marvel at that ability. I am envious of that ability to execute at that level. That's just not how we do it. We strive to be like that, but we do it in a way that is much more, we have an idea. We, we try to stick to that idea, but we try to look at all the data and all the customer reaction and all the basically like fuck ups that happen. And we adapt, and we're constantly adapting. So for me, I think almost everything we've done has been a failure from the get-go. Then that's just the truth. And I don't think people see that. We have fucked up just about every opening and every restaurant we've ever done. That's not always true. There's a couple here or there, like Sydney, Co. But even then, like, things were different. And it's... We just grind it out and we figure out how to make it work as we go. And I think that's what makes it a very organic experience for people in Momofuku and sometimes maddening for people in Momofuku. Um, but to me, I, don't, I can't see any other way to do it um, than to like engage with the world, make the mistakes, and, and uh, pick up the pieces from there and just get back up and do it again. As I'm thinking about the difference between... Will and Daniel, and, and, you know, they have 11 Madison Park. They had one restaurant for a really long time, and they just had one thing. And then they shifted to Nomad, and they had two things, and the two things were very clearly in dialogue with each other. I mean, their growth process has been so different and so deliberate and so just completely a different animal. The comparison that you're drawing between how they operate and how you operate seems to me very similar to the difference between like legacy print media and digital media like there's this whole thing in digital where like we fuck up in public all the time and it's super fast moving and you can't really focus and it's always just like ideas 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 and the victories are public but so are the Mm -hmm. tailspins and it's so different than like the silent powerful ship of the new york times that just (laughs) glides forward and is impenetrable i mean you know there's there's there are different ways to do things in the world. Yeah, and I guess for me, the hard part is, you know, um, I, you know, Maple as an investor failed. I, I, again, I don't know how, considering how many meals that were being served. Um, hmm. Ondo, we've had our struggles because we first time it's been a merger as as far as I know of like smart tech people and industry cooks. That's a hard merger and. We're making the right kinds of mistakes, and I, I'm fascinated by that, mainly because I love delivery, but I just feel like, not just feel like, I know it has to work. And the only way we're going to get to that point is by trying new things and fucking it up. As you say, unfortunately and fortunately, you know, the good gets praised and the bad gets scrutinized. I want to make sure that doesn't... Um, prevent us from trying more shit out. And it pains me more than you guys know to let people down. It fucking sucks because no one's a harsher critic than than I think myself. And uh, I just, I don't know what my, how, 
I can't, I can't even imagine what Momofuku would be like or the entities we do if everything was like perfect from the get go. Um, that would scare the shit out of me. Um, so really quickly, like if somebody hasn't been back to Nishi in like a year and you come back like now, like what's the thing? What are the things that are popping off? Like what should you order? Um, I love, I love the, the meat program there right now. Um, Jamie and Josh are just kicking ass. I still think the menu has pretty much not changed that much um, um, for dinner. I know we have some changes in the works. Um, I mean, we're, we're planning to, 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 to modernize the dining room in some fashion. I know we've been planning to do that. But another thing that people don't realize is, like, we're not like a lot of restaurant groups. We open that up on a shoestring budget, and when we've had the money and saved up enough money, we're going to— like redo the dining room. That's what that's what we're doing. And one of the questions was, do we make the dining room look like modern American, or do we keep it the way we want to do it? And I ref- I just can't fucking give in to how you know <clears throat> certain people want it. <laughs> you say certain people with such derision, <laughs> like fuck the man, no cushions on the seats. Um, so, yeah, you know, we updated Sambar, and we're constantly doing that. And, and I think, you know, it's hard for people to see, like, we've made some changes in the company, and it's been a tumultuous year on that end because we have near 1,000 employees on the culinary end. And as Momofuku grows up, we can't do everything. And that's that's been the real shitty part of this year. I feel like... Momofuku, the story of Momofuku always involves evolution, you know, like things changing and gradually over time. And then you, you know, something is like different than the first time you went. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that the, the shitty part is when we're not changing enough and we, whether it's hubris or laziness, um, we are content and that scares the shit out of me. How do you know when it's time to let something die? Like, how do you know when it's time to sunset a restaurant or Lucky Peach, for example, which just folded? We didn't. Lucky Peach, we didn't. That was probably one of the, continues to be one of the most painful things. Um, That was hard, you know. Um, It was and still is uh, something that is really raw. Um, But that decision really was I don't think, put it this way, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it too much um, because I don't think there's, it it might make people that are curious happy, but I think for the people involved within Lucky Peach, it, no one gains. And um, is Lucky Peach the first Momofuku endeavor to close? I'm trying to think of, have you closed any restaurants? No. We've gone a long time without actually closing a restaurant. Well, that is an ins- that is an insane track record <laughs> for as many as you've opened in New York City and other cities yeah. as well. And we closed Brooklyn and Dax. Um, That's but, true. But um, again, like these are things that we just didn't know when we set up these companies. And I wish we set things up differently. And the hardest part is Dave Arnold, uh, a close friend of mine, Peter Meehan, not only close friend, but someone I consider my brother and someone that essentially, I mean, I just got married, but... <laughs> That's the longest relationship I've ever fucking been in. And, you know, relationships come to an end. And I I really hope that it doesn't. I I, I feel confident that something good will come about of that between the both of us. Um, But it's hard to do it when my focus can't just be whatever the fuck I want to do now. (laughs) Um, I have to do what's best for the restaurants. That's what we do. Um, and I don't know many other restaurant groups that supported a magazine. So that's, that's, (laughs) it's a lot. And I was able to sort of do whatever I wanted to do because no, we didn't have any investors and these are now legacy issues. And, uh, one day I'm sure it'll all be explained. Um, and I definitely feel uh, bad about how, how it all went down because we tried so hard to make it all right for everything. Um, and uh, I don't know. Um, I it, it was it's been a really really hard year um, because I you know 
whether it's changing a business partner or or doing a business with your friends and you're not doing that business with them, that's like it's pretty heavy stuff. So, well, yeah. On that uplifting note, it's time yeah. for us to ask you what kind <laughs> of underwear you wear in the lightning round. Lightning round music. Doo, doo, doo. Lightning round. So normally on the upsell, we um, bring in a guest question asker to to hit you with the hard balls for the lightning round. But today, because you're David Chang and in many respects are one of the patron saints of Eater, we crowdsourced. That's the trendy thing the kids are doing these days. We crowdsourced some lightning round questions from our fellow Eater editors, which we're going to throw at you. So let's fire them away. Lightning round question number one. Dave Chang, what's your don't look at the menu diner order? You walk into a diner, you sit down. What do you tell the what do you tell the waiter or waitress? Fatty melt. What kind of bread? It's always rye. That's the correct answer. Yes. yes. What kind of cheese? Uh, I think it's just I ask for American always. Do you ask for cheddar? No. American is the only exception. Yeah, answer. I don't think there's yeah. any other cheese. And then I always ask for well done fries and then if they don't have coleslaw, that makes me a little upset because I'm the guy that puts the coleslaw in the patty melt. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Like a patty melt Reuben yeah. type thing. And also, wow. <laughs> you should see my top 50 list for restaurants that I voted in for the top 50. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to get in trouble because I've just been telling everyone what I vote. I put Cassell's in Los Angeles in my top 50 list because I think they make the best patty melt I've ever had in my life. I love that. That's very democratic of you. It's the fucking best. I cannot... I want to put patty melts on the restaurants, but I don't want the people like Cassell's to be like, well, you just stole our shit because I only want to do homage to what they've done, <laughs> what they've done. I just think it's one of the best goddamn things you could eat anywhere. Could you like license their, like call it Cassell's patty melt and send them a dollar for everyone you yeah, sell? Yeah, I wish, but like... they have this, this different way. They cook the, the cheese and they have this special griddle. Uh, highly recommend it. I just think that patty melt is, uh, it's not a diner, but... Every put it this way, every time I go to a diner and people don't realize how often I eat at diners, um, <laughs> I always get the patty melt and I'm always disappointed because in my head it's not a Cassell's patty melt. It makes me sad. I like that this and <laughs> you you know where perfection is and yet you continue to search for it. <laughs> Just rolling that rolling that uh, <laughs> stone uphill. <laughs> All right. Um next lightning round question. If you were stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life with some set of immortality generating tools or whatever with one person, either Rene Redzepi or Anthony Bourdain, who would you choose? I'd choose between two. Yep. Just those two. Fuck. Or I guess infinite solitude. Um, like you could choose one of them and murder him immediately. Wow. They're really close to me. Um, <laughs> Uncle Tony. <laughs> here, here's simply, Do you here's call a, him Uncle, Uncle Tony? Tony? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is he like in your phone as Uncle Tony? I would like that to be true. Uh, he's not. He's under, uh, I don't even know what it is. Um, I think it's Tony. Um, who, by the way, is one of the most amazing, magnificent human beings ever. And uh, I think people always ask, is he as awesome as I think that he is? And I'm like, yes, and still way more awesome than you could believe. And uh, he's been Uncle Tony to me for for a long time. And I've been really, again, I don't know how this shit happens. He's one of the, I'm just very fortunate. He's one of these Michael Linden-like figures in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, sorry, Uncle Tony. I'm going to go with my good pal, Rene Redzepi, because um, I'm going to ask him to, like, he's going to figure out some fucking foraging system that will keep, keep our food fresh on this desert island. And I don't think Tony knows how to forge anything except for Marlboro Reds. <laughs> it didn't really occur to me that, like, Actually, Rene Redzepi is a fantastic survivalist. Yeah. Like, he's, yeah. He, yes. He'll take like the weird lichen that you and just all of a sudden. It's and, and knowing Tony, no, not knowing Tony again, like I would I probably have a better time with Tony. But with Rene and knowing Rene, he would probably, you know, help devise a system to get off that fucking island. OK. <laughs> all right. All right. Well. <laughs> Next uh, lightning round question. As you mentioned earlier, you recently got married. Congratulations. Congratulations. What was the dessert at your wedding? Was it a wedding cake? And what was it? Uh, Christina Tosi. We eloped. Um, and somehow Christina Tosi found out beforehand and uh, sent a cake. Um, and we had wow. uh, chocolate, passion fruit, milk bar cake. 
that is the correct the milk bar one. cake. Yes. That it, yeah. we we were having a discussion in the office about that yesterday. That the the passion fruit chocolate chip milk bar cake is is the supreme milk bar cake. And she somehow has like you know forced me to also love that because she's like this is David's favorite cake, and I don't remember ever like <laughs> saying that to myself, but like. Because she tells me that, I'm like, yes, this is my favorite cake. She's just inceptioned you into <laughs> believing that you love it. She is a force of nature, yes. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, we have two questions left. Second to last, when was the last time you had a Momofuku pork bun? Oh, man. I tried to eat. Actually, I, I have the buns quite a bit. I don't have the pork too much. Uh, I probably had one maybe like a year ago, and that was just a bite. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a bombshell. Yeah. David Chang has not had a Momofuku pork bun in over a year. I, the shiitake buns at uh, Noodle Those are the move, man. Amazing. It. It's not that I don't. I just—we've cooked and tasted so much pork. <laughs> it's so hard for me. That I fucked up two things. It's hard for me to love bacon and pork products um, because I'm now, like, I've reached this, like— um, I feel like, you know, what's that Buddhist tantric thing to, like, get over uh, <laughs> urges and desires? Like, I almost have zero— desire to eat pork products like I used to. And because we make so much fucking fried chicken, one of my great joys, pork and fried chicken, are no longer things that I crave. Oh, God, you yeah. ruined them for That's yourself. Right. Yeah, I ruined them for myself because they're every, every, fucking everywhere. It's like like when a parent catches their kid smoking and makes them smoke the whole pack. Yes. You did that to yourself. I've done your that to myself. Foods. And I still taste it. I mean, like, I taste it, but, like, the buns to me are hard to eat on an everyday basis because I don't have to taste it every day anymore. And having tasted it so many times, it's hard for me to, to like, not that I won't eat pork belly. i just cooking pork belly in different ways right now. Um my wife loves this uh, this dish. This is like the epitome of uh, ugly delicious. My cream's so bad, I'm probably gonna butcher it. It's kongbiji, and it's it's um, you know soybeans that have been cooked whole, skinned, and and you crush them up, and you cook them with kimchi and slices of pork belly until it turns into this almost cassoulet like thing. And uh, I've been making a lot of that, and I've also uh, at trying to get people to uh, do this dish my grandfather liked quite a bit. And, yeah, I think I, I spoke about it, but, like, we were trying so hard to make all of these, you know, dishes from the Muslim banned states. And, you know, we're working with Leo and a couple other people, and that's a whole nother project. But, like, I was like, man, I don't know anything about this food. <laughs> and somehow I kept on making pork belly <laughs> instead. I was like, well, While that, you're trying to be making, like, like, mus- like halal food. Yeah, and you're just cooking pretty pork. much. And, uh <laughs> There's a dish my grandfather loved quite a bit because he was a Korean person that was educated and lived in Japan. It was basically pork belly that's been cooked in brown sugar or rock sugar, lots of ginger and garlic. And uh, I've been making that quite a bit. Um, And again, it's one of those dishes that I make and I I tell my guys like, hey, we should put this on the menu. And they're like, yeah, sure, chef. Like. <laughs> like who the fuck's going to eat a pile of pork belly like yeah. that? Okay, Grandpa. Yeah, like go yeah. back watch TV. Exactly. We're getting you what you want. All okay. right, Dave. Final question. Yeah, this is this is uh, we're Ellen and I are so really excited about, about this. this question. Oh, okay. So who is currently on the eats for free list at Momo, the Mobafuku restaurant slash who is on the kick them out list and is there anyone oh, man, on the, the kick, them kick them out, the out list? list? We have the no PX. No PX list. Um, uh, the like fuck you list, basically. Yeah, you know, something I cultivated for a long time. I, I just, I'm still an angry guy. I just am not as angry as I used to be. Uh, you know, rest in peace, John, Josh Rozoski. Uh, if he was still alive, he would still not be allowed in the <laughs> um, uh, Wow. There are a few people, but I don't think it's mostly like don't send them anything, don't do anything. Um, on the who eats for free list quite a bit. There's a couple chefs, um, and some we have a I have a where there's an agreement with a few of the chefs. So like, if you eat at a place and it's more than two people, you're not getting comped. And seems like smart business. Um, there's one. There's a <laughs> there's one group. Uh, I think that they get comped quite a bit. I don't think they've paid in quite some time. Uh, I think they paid recently because they were seven top. And I was like, at some point, you just can't comp that. Um, but there's a rotating, there's a couple chefs in New York that eat at Noodle Bar a lot. 
and they know who they, know who they are. I, I'm like, fuck, man. They eat there all the time. How often do you, like, sit down and massage who is on the do not PX list? Like, is this a, like, you're in the will, you're out of the will, like, daily basis kind of thing? Like, So I'll tell you one person I want. We open up in Las Vegas, and, um, you know, there's people in my career that have been real pain in my ass, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> John Curtis... And I, I, I hate him, and I didn't want to even ever mention his name because it just uh, validates his fucking shitty personality and his hatred towards us. And I was telling the Cosmo, like, I'm if he comes in, he's fucking not allowed in. I'm going to—he's he's not allowed in. And I made this big stink about, like, don't let him in. He's, ne- he's not going to give us a fair shot, and there's no chance in hell. And uh, I, lo- I lost that battle— and he gave us a really bad review um, in Las Vegas. It wasn't even, it was just a weird review, actually. In some ways, I, I hate it when, like, white guys tell me how to make Asian food. It pisses me off so much. Um, <sighs> fuck this guy. Um, I think um, we're not going to disagree with your <laughs> <laughs> He's a shitty person. <laughs> He's a bad yeah. fucking guy. And um, I, 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 I've said horrific things about him, and I'm okay with that. And uh, I, hope, I hope nothing but the worst for this person. And that, that, there used to be a lot of people like that. Um, Clark Wolf's another. Fuck that guy. Um, don't know who he is, but sure, fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what what this guy did, but he's always like trash me. Um, um, and <laughs> there's a lot if I had to think about it. In, in, <laughs> in some ways, Momofuku became successful because um, because of this. Like, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you one story, and I'll t- <laughs> there was a person that ran a culinary organization. I won't say her name because I don't even want to give her any ounce of credibility. I instantly know exactly yes. who you're talking about. And they sit, they give awards to people, and <laughs> and we open up in 2004, 2005. Uh, well, no, she came in 2004, and I, I remember her eating the food, and then she goes to me, hey, come here, young man. And <laughs> she's like, this isn't Japanese food. And I was like, excuse me? She's like, I know Japanese food. My husband's Japanese. And I remember walking away, not even letting her finish her sentence, and I just walked the fuck away. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, she runs some organization. There's a few other stories where we had, like, crazy shit happen. And uh, it was basically full-out war. And uh, one day I got a letter saying, hey, let bygones be bygones. Let our past be, like, whatever, water under the bridge or whatever the fuck. She said, and I, I, I wrote back <laughs> the only reason Momofu- one of the reasons Momofuku has been successful is our complete and utter hatred of you. Oh, my God. And wow. And uh, the only way we will bury the hatchet is when your organization is defunct and over. We're gonna bury the hatchet in your fucking head. Oh my is, god! Is that organization still alive? I think so. Have you I think so. I think so. I, it doesn't okay. matter to me. But I used to like—that's the kind of rage I used to wake up with and go to bed with. Just people, anyone that said no to us, basically, basically the only people that were on that list were said, "You can't do this. Fuck you, Dave. You can't do this. Momofuku sucks. We don't believe in you." You're a fucking scourge on this earth. Get the fuck out of the restaurant industry. Those are the people that became um, on the on the on the like the the fatwa was declared. I mean, when you them. frame it like that, it seems like the logical response. Yeah, I'm not gonna fucking lay down. This doesn't seem say disproportionate. That. Like, no. of course, of course. Tell me, I'm a scourge on this earth. I'm gonna destroy <laughs> you and everyone you love. Yeah, it's a little bit different now, um, but it's it's now. <laughs> More about being able to recognize people, uh, but I think people do get a kick. There is a no SPX uh, list. Like, don't send them fucking anything. Don't barely acknowledge their existence. Just make sure they don't have a bad time so they can't write a shitty thing about us. I love it. It's a good philosophy. Just give them no ammo. No ammo. I mean, yeah. I still think the kicking out the critic is one of the best things. I mean, (laughs) 
kicked out Gail Green. That was fun. That was a fun day. I mean, the power dynamic is endlessly fascinating. People don't do it enough or very often, but every time it happens, it's always like uh, uh, it's irresistible as a journalist to learn all the details about that. You know, we don't, we don't get a lot of drama here in the food world. It's no. I mean, here's an interesting thing that happened on I'll Let It Be. And this is like a conundrum. It was a moral dilemma. A food critic came in and uh, one of our restaurants and uh, I was actually in the kitchen and we fucked up one of the dishes. It just the, the time was too long and there was a lag. And whenever that happens at any other table, we we're going to send them one dish to tide them over. We sent that to this table because that's sort of our policy. But you send free food to a critic, it's like, what the fuck? So I didn't want to. But, like, again, like, this blur, it's a blurry line now about what you do and how you treat that kind of situation. And um, I only bring this up because I'm like, do I let this guy in the restaurant? You know? What would happen if you ban the critic from a restaurant? I don't know. Adam Platt got banned from— The Teresi guys did it. Yeah, I mean— and what happened? I don't know. They both seem fine. Yeah, I think he's probably reviewed. Actually, I don't know if he has reviewed another one of their restaurants. But you know, uh, Jordan Kahn did that with Irene Verbena. You know? yeah. I think that was a very poor decision on his mm-hmm. end because she's a lovely lady. Um, so I don't know. At some point, though, I think that the the something is going to happen there. I, I don't know. Uh, Yelp will just take over yeah. everyone. N- none of us will have jobs anymore. There will only well, you will. But Greg and I will just sort of live on the street and write freelance Yelp reviews. It'll be great. And people, yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, David Chang, thank you so much for joining us on the Eater Upsell today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks so much, David Chang. I appreciate being here. Hopefully I, I didn't spew too much verbal diarrhea. And, uh, Not a usual amount for the show, yeah. I think. We have contained it within the diaper of the Eater Upsell. It's, it's what we're all about. It's our tagline, the Eater Upsell, verbal diarrhea from the world's finest chefs. Right. Well, this has been great. And um, as always, listeners at home, make sure you're subscribed to the Eater Upsell. If you're not subscribed, just do it um, and give us a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast Store and maybe leave a review and tell us how much you love us and also how cute Dave's puppy is. If they want to follow your dog on Instagram, where can they it's find Momo him? Momo underscore Sevi. And he's named after Sevi Ballesteros, the great Spanish golfer. He's a super cute dog. Awesome. David Chang, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Cool. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.